from Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. If you were feeling pessimistic about the future of our planet under global warming, then you're not alone. And also, you're not wrong. Humans have, after all, managed to heat up the planet by about 2 degrees Fahrenheit over pre-industrial times. That's largely as a result of the burning of coal and oil and gas for energy. And even once we knew that these carbon-emitting fossil fuels were helping trap heat in our atmosphere, we delayed curbing our emissions for so long that now it's going to be virtually impossible to stop global warming from intensifying over the next few decades. Already, our planet is experiencing more heat waves and floods and wildfires. Ocean glaciers are melting even faster than many worst-case predictions have suggested, and as a result, sea levels are rising. So when Chris Turner says that he's a climate optimist, the first thing you might think is that he's actually a climate denier. But that's not the case. As a journalist, Turner has been studying the climate crisis for nearly 20 years, and he believes the consensus view of scientists that global warming is real, it's human-caused, and it's changing our climate in ways that are already threatening and taking human lives. But Turner has also been focused for a long time on what people are doing around the world to counter this growing threat. And he's increasingly optimistic that we can indeed head off the worst-case scenarios. Turner has made the case for this way of looking at the future in his book, How to Be a Climate Optimist, Blueprints for a Better World, which was recently shortlisted for the Shaughnessy Cohen Prize for political writing. Chris Turner, welcome. Thank you for having me. Chris, we live in this really cool world. I often say, like, it's cool to live in the future. We we got this amazing place where billions of people can connect with one another, where We've taken really big leaps in understanding our place in the cosmos. Uh, you know, artificial intelligence is changing the way that we think about complexity and our ability to cut through complexity. And then we also live in this time where there's just this really negative vibe about the future. And there's a good phrase for that in your book. The writer Bruce Sterling came up with it and you've adopted it, this term is dark euphoria. Talk about dark euphoria. Yeah, dark euphoria is, as you say, a, a term that Bruce Sterling suggested about 10 years or so ago to sort of describe our age. And what he was getting at by that was that there, it's just an extraordinary time in terms of the expansion of human capability to do all kinds of amazing things, to have, you know, simultaneous video conversations with people around the world, to sequence and alter genomes, to just do extraordinary things. And yet, rather than feeling in any sense that we are in some sort of uh, utopian future of orderly matched jumpsuit bliss, instead, I think, understandably, a lot of us feel a sort of creeping dread, the dark part uh, on top of the euphoria, which is that you know, uh, as our ambitions have expanded to, the, to this point where we can alter the, our, our planet to such to such an extraordinary degree, it's having some very very dark unintended consequences, and, and there's also some very 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 dark clouds on the horizon. And you didn't completely escape that foreboding sense that our climate future is bleak. You didn't come into this, I guess I should say, as a climate optimist. But no, no, yeah. 
you you did sort of catch a bug you said uh eventually uh i mean to to begin with and i and i was i guess sort of ahead of the curve you know entering you know starting my career as a journalist in the late 1990s i was already you already thought you know that climate change would be the defining kind of public policy issue of the coming century that you know as a journalist i wanted to write and talk about it as much as i could and at the time was very much you know alarmed by what was already then beginning to emerge from the, the sort of scientific consensus. And then the bug I caught, though, was sort of accidental, which was that when you got a glimpse of what the solutions might look like, it was really exciting. And the, the very first one that I ever encountered was at a, an electric car show in 2000 in Montreal, which, you know, it's an annual thing where all the car companies that make the various kinds of zero emission or low emission vehicles get together and show things off. At the time, it was very, very marginal. The, the only car on display there that was going to be soon available for purchase was the Toyota Prius at the time. This is like, this is long before the word Tesla is on anybody's mind other than in relationship to Nicholas Tesla. Exactly. I don't, I don't even think Tesla may have existed as a corporation yet. The vehicle that was, was generating all the excitement that day in Montreal was this Ford prototype sedan that ran on hydrogen fuel cells and its its exhaust was was water was water vapor the engineer who was showing us how it worked put his hand in front of the exhaust and then held it up and his hand was covered in water droplets and did he did he lick it i feel like he needed to lick it he should have he really should have. <laughs> I would, I the visual there would have been great uh, it would have been very awkward for me to do so but the temptation was certainly there <laughs> and that was you know that was sort of the start of this accelerating trip down a kind of journalistic path to just really focusing on the solutions, which was never, ever intended to in any way suggest that the, the, the crisis itself was was not getting worse all the time or didn't deserve all the attention it, it could possibly get from a media and public point of view, but rather that it didn't seem like there was as much coverage going on of how we might fix it. I was at a talk you gave at Westminster College fairly recently, and you showed this slide that uh, unfortunately through the medium of radio uh, I can't share, but it charted all these moments in which benchmarks for electricity production from solar were expected to hit and then kind of plateau. And, And the bottom line is that we've exceeded all of those expectations, just blown by them again and again, right? Yeah, this is the the graphic you're describing is a chart of actual global solar installations against IEA scenario estimates. So IEA every year puts out this World Energy Outlook where it kind of estimates what's going to happen to all the world's energy supplies and demand and everything else for the next year. They just did not see, uh, really nobody did the steady decline in cost, the speed of pickup, and, and so it's it's quite a, it's quite a remarkable snapshot. One of how little we understood where we would be ten years ago, and I think I also how quickly we're moving into a much more optimistic future. Are we seeing that sort of growth in wind too? Yeah, you see it in gro- wind. You see it in energy storage. You now see it in electric vehicles. Where in every single case, some of the other sort of uh, lesser known things like uh, geothermal and, and various other technologies like that, beginning to see some of this kind of growth, and it's basically. Very, very steep cost declines accompanied by very, very steep uh, adoption 
Uh, one of the examples I, I often give is my own home province of Alberta here in Canada, which historically is one of the most conservative provinces in Canada, if not the most conservative, has had a government for the last few years that's you know indifferent to slightly hostile to non-fossil energy. And yet we are now the leading jurisdiction in Canada for new solar and wind because the, the business case is so strong. You have said that you believe that for these reasons, we will get to a low carbon future in, in most of the world pretty quickly. H- how quickly? What do, what do you think when you kind of look out of, against the next coming decades? When do we get to those points? I mean, uh, the big goal on everyone's uh, agenda these days, in, at least in the circles I run in, is 2030, because that's when uh, the 2015 Paris Climate Agreement, 2030 was its first benchmark. There are a lot of very ambitious targets for emissions reduction, for renewable energy adoption, for electric vehicle production, all these sorts of things that have 2030, 2035 as their goal. Uh I think, you know, I mean, I, I don't even have to look back that far. If you're looking from the outside in at the United States, a lot of what we thought was going to be the pace of some of this stuff just got a giant boost from the Inflation Reduction Act and from the, the substantial boost that it's given to a bunch of the clean tech industry. So we may wind up even, even sort of exceeding or, or hitting those goals early. But certainly, I think by, you know, 10 years from now, I think we'll already be living in a world where renewable energy is virtually the only new power source that that we're seeing in large amounts, where, you know, there will still be old buildings and old technologies and old cars on the road, but where where most of the new vehicles are uh, low emissions of one sort or another. A lot of them will be all electric, where you're seeing a lot more the short haul transport industry moving to all electric, by which I mean things like, you know, Amazon delivery vehicles and FedEx trucks and all that kind of stuff. I can't say exactly when and where, but I mean, I think we're 10 years out from a pretty substantially improved picture on the climate front. And the other big goal, obviously, is 2050. It's When you're talking that far out, it's it, anything anyone says is not even really a prediction. It's just kind of soft sci-fi. But I do think that the progression now towards low to zero emissions future is inevitable and accelerating. And so it's just a question of how fast. Just a while ago, you said the words, we may be exceeding or hitting goals early. And I got to figure that even for someone who, for a good deal of time now, has defined himself as a climate optimist, that's got to feel like a weird thing to say. It, it's weird enough that I do I do find myself still double checking every time because it, it begins it, you start to think have I you know have I bought into someone's hype here but no it, it really genuinely is now accelerating at this kind of rate where where you know basically the, the the kind of news stories I would track that you'd see once a month now seem to happen once a week or once a day where you know like there was a, a piece recently in Bloomberg talking about uh, or adoption curves on a number of key clean tech technologies hitting tipping points in 87 countries around the world. Uh, this is that, that sort of classic technology adoption curve where there's the, the sort of very, very, very slow buildup and then the inflection point, and then it really takes off that we saw with all kinds of digital technology. We're now seeing that with solar and wind and electric vehicles and certain kinds of storage and efficiency and heat pumps and all this sort of stuff. So, so all of that and 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 it, and it uh, reinforces each other too. There's sort of a snowballing effect to all of these technologies. Some of them have really powerful synergies that we've just begun to explore. Uh, one of the ones that I talk about is 
you know, when Ford rolled out its all-electric pickup truck, the F-150 Lightning, it talked about how not only is it a good, reliable Ford truck, but it also could power a worksite or keep your keep the lights on in your house for a weekend when you when the power went out. All of that is is pretty exciting stuff, and you do have to you know try and maintain a little bit of of you know journalistic skepticism and say, well, is that really? You know, is it, is it really working out that well? But in a lot of cases, it, it truly is. You know, the first time I unfolded uh, the cover on my truck bed, I just looked at the thing and I went, that should be a solar panel. Right. I, like there's, there's all of these ways, I think, that once we start thinking in terms of, you know, putting electricity uh, into our homes or on the grid in ways that are different than what we were used to before, we get imaginative. And I think a lot of people are getting imaginative right now. How you make and use energy is, has, has changed pretty fundamentally, I think, in ways that we don't really can't even begin to grasp the implications of if you think about things. I mean, you, I've already heard, had people t- talk to me about this with, in, in the case of car batteries, saying if you're, if you're going to drive your electric vehicle to work, plug it back into the grid, and that grid can, can then draw on that power. Think about just the you know, potential aggregate and, and sort of, you know, leveraging that some financial wizard who wants to sort of package that stuff up and give you a cut of it and take his cut and, and broker that power back to the grid or whatever the, you know, like that particular scenario may or may not come to pass, but it's, we've certainly opened up a much wider range of possibility uh, for who gets to participate in the energy marketplace, for how they participate. We are no longer, you know, stuck exclusively to a consumer role. Uh, there's a lot more actors in the in, in, on the field now, and, and all of that is going to be really powerful, I think. I want to go back to this idea of doing more with less, like just generating more efficiencies. The way that we heat and cool our buildings has been a particular interest of yours talk more about heat pumps right heat pumps are uh, really a great example right this instant of how quickly the playing field for the energy transition has changed basically you can take a gas boiler or whatever you have currently heating a building remove it use heat pumps instead heat pumps uh, are basically heat exchangers they're like air conditioners that can run forward and backward so they can either heat or cool an interior space they do so using electricity off the grid at extremely high efficiency and then all of a sudden in the last few years the the adoption rate of heat pumps has exploded around the world and this is now one of the sort of energy efficiency darlings of the world now is this heat pump. It enables electrification. It does things much more efficiently. It's a really great example of a you know climate fighting tool that also just happens to do the job better. Of course, this is not a utopia. You've said that. There are problems with solar. There are problems with wind and hydro and certainly nuclear, which is also part of the non-carbon emitting solutions that are expected to be generating even more power in the next 20 years. You've acknowledged all of that, but you've also said this is not post-apocalyptic, right? Like maybe we're not perfect, but maybe we don't need to live in this world of, of dark euphoria either. Yeah. Well, I mean, any solution at the scale of the climate crisis has to be global and industrial and you do not get pristine environmental footprint. You're still talking about, you know, mining and smelting and, and, and forging and, you know, manufacturing silicon wafers and all the other sort of, so it, it's still a world that has, you know, substantial 
pollution and waste in it that, that does in fact require you know, digging the earth and, and all kinds of other stuff. But overall, ideally, less of that and, and less wastefully. So there's that aspect. And then I think the other thing is, you know, when I started on the sort of climate solution beat as a journalist, the genuine apocalypse stuff was kind of still potentially, if you looked at what global business as usual emissions curves looked like for, for carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases 20, 25 years ago, it didn't take a lot of exaggeration to get into, into very, very post-apocalyptic kind of scenarios 100 years out or whatever. I mean, you, just, you were talking about four or five, six degrees of warming potentially. Uh, that's Celsius worldwide. Whereas now the global target is 1.5 degrees Celsius. That's going to be very, very hard to hit now. But missing it just by a little is still many, many, many orders of magnitude less catastrophic than what we were looking down the barrel of 20 years ago. And those really seriously catastrophic scenarios are more or less off the table now. That does not mean that the, you know, the climate that we're going to live in in 10, 20 years, the climate that we're going to hand off to our children and grandchildren isn't going to be quite volatile, uh, quite different from the one that we certainly grew up in in the 20th century, for those of us who did some are growing in, in the 20th century. But I mean, one way I sometimes think about it is the, you know, the, the boat's still kind of inching toward an iceberg. It's probably going to scrape against the iceberg quite hard on, on its turn, but it is turning now. Well, and I think we can probably agree that all that apocalyptic talk, even when it did seem very reasonable and rational, really isn't working. I know you're not a big fan of the doomsday clock, which is this hypothetical clock counting down to the end of humanity and members of the bulletin of the atomic scientists have been uh, updating this thing since uh, 1940s, like 1947, I think, presumably because they're trying to get people to change our wayward ways. But you've called this the world's longest running case study in bad science communication. <laughs> I, I, I have. Yeah. And I think if you look at it, it's, it's, if something is always two minutes to midnight, then it, then it, as far as anyone can tell, it's not changing. Whether oh it's two and a half now it's now it's three now it's two again now it's two and a half now it's three. like your scale is entirely wrong to whatever crisis you're trying to communicate because it doesn't look to most people like it moved. And there was a little bit of this I think in some of the the and still is in some of the climate change rhetoric where we get very into you know like there's only an X number more years to avert disaster creates this notion that there is you know, a trigger point which there isn't there you know there are thresholds but any point along the, the the way that we begin to reduce emissions reduces the the overall impact of climate change and more than that I think for people who don't live and breathe this who don't follow it all the time who are not in the thick of it if all you ever hear is this is an emergency we're about to uh, boats about to hit the iceberg to carry on with that metaphor and then it never quite does you stop paying attention to how close it allegedly is to the iceberg because you're because that that moment of crisis isn't upon you yet and i think there are kind of diminishing returns to trying to make that sound you know even closer and more terrifying and so i just i, I just don't think it's a very good scale uh for communicating what it's trying to communicate well, better science communication in your view and i like this a lot by the way is it's telling people that they are doing well and asking them to keep going. Yeah. 
And this is right out of the Daniel Kahneman thinking fast and slow behavioral economic playbook, uh, which is that that people are people's biases are much better rewarded by telling them that they've already you know, part of the goal's already been accomplished. Uh, so you're not starting from scratch. It's already underway. It's going well. It's it's you know people like to jump on bandwagons. When we talk about climate in that way, when we acknowledge the challenges and risks, but we also focus on the solutions and we present an opportunity for people to, as you say, jump on these bandwagons, you found, I think I found too, that something really changes in people's desire to engage. Yeah. And it's one of those things that I think because there was the, the, the early years of, the, of communicating the climate crisis were such an upstream slog. Where you felt like everything you said, the, the, you know, the, w- was being drowned out by louder, more powerful voices saying the status quo was just fine and everything else. And I think it created a bit of a bunker mentality of, you know, we can't ever let up the fight and ever acknowledge that we're winning and tell people that we're doing good because if we do, then they'll decide that they don't have to keep working at it, and that's not really how we work uh, as as animals. We're actually much more interested in jumping on a, a on a winning team's bandwagon. And we like being part of things that make the world feel like it's going to get better. And particularly given the time horizon of, of addressing the climate crisis, like we're talking about something that's going to take decades. Even if even if that were an effective tool to get people to stay in panic mode for years on end. I mean, you know, we just saw what that's like in the in the pandemic. No one wants to keep living like that. You will delude yourself greatly as to the scale of the threat in order to stop living in, in panic after a time. And so I think it, th- th- there's a lot of really really powerful change creating energy to be mined in optimism. I really love the idea of climate optimism. I also understand how the human brain works and I've never yet met a person who doesn't have some doubts and dark days. And I know you're a father and I know for a fact that one of the things that fathers are really good at is worrying about their kids. So I imagine that there are probably times that you worry that your optimism is misplaced. Is is that the case for you? And what do you do in those times? Yeah, I mean, I think it's the case in that, you know, uh, there is so much unpredictability. But this is true of, you know, anything you try and guard your kids against. It's, it's a very predictable and uncertain world. Uh, th- this book, How to Be a Climate Optimist, in a way was kind of my own gut check on that. You know, I'd been sort of talking about solutions and saying things are getting better, and they, there actually did look like there was some light on the horizon. That had been, you know, a, a message I, I, in previous books and, and lots of other uh, stuff I've written and talked about. And I thought, if I go back and look at where we were when I started this and where we are today, does that pass muster? Is that something I can honestly, you know, look in the faces of my kids and their friends and say, you know what, I know that it seems really, really troubling out there, but in fact, we have built a pretty strong uh, a toolkit now to help you sort out at least some measure of of this crisis in the years to come, and I think it checks out. It is in fact getting better, uh, and it is in fact getting better at a more rapid rate than when when I first started looking at it. So there is actually a, a momentum there that you can you can put some trust in. How do kids react when they hear an adult, a knowledgeable adult, say these things? Because It sure seems to me that as much as adults are sort of living in this world of dark euphoria, kids are just absolutely drowning 
in it. Do you get the sense that they feel like they're being thrown a lifeline a little bit? I mean, certainly that's that's the hope. And certainly that is what I see among, you know, my kids' friends and other kids' friends who who wake up to to the scale of the thing and you know the 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 initial wave of shock and grief is very real. Uh, I think and maybe with good cause, uh, often the reaction is, well, that's great, but it's not enough and it's not fast enough. And to which I, you know, respond as honestly as possible. Well, then help, help make it go faster. A lot of people are doing the best they can and have been for, for a while to try and, to try and get this thing to, to happen. So if you can, if you can see a way forward that, that moves it faster, this is a great project for your generation and we'll, and we'll join you in and support it. So, so my, my hope, I think, is that you really don't, you know, the encouraging part is you really don't have to prime the pump all that much with the sort of younger generation coming, you know, beginning to come into the workforce and that sort of, they're already completely awake to the scale of the problem. They don't want to work for companies that aren't awake to the scale of the problem. They are going to, I think, be much more natural problem solvers in this realm than, than those of us who didn't grow up completely steeped in it. And hopefully along the way, they come to see that it's not a bleak and hopeless project, that in fact, it, it, leads, it leads somewhere pretty great. That's Chris Turner. He's a journalist focused on climate solutions and the author of How to Be a Climate Optimist, Blueprints for a Better World. Chris, thank you so much. This was a great conversation. I'm happy to be part of it. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio. And if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us on UPR every Thursday morning at 1030 and on KCPW at 10 on Thursday and noon on Sunday. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our program is supported by public radio listeners like you. So if you're a donor to Utah Public Radio or KCPW in Salt Lake City, we want to thank you. And if you're not, why not? Head over to upr.org and click on the donate link and make sure in the comments you let them know that you're a supporter of this program. Our producer is Claire Scott. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.